Well, church, great to be back with you guys again. And if uh, you missed out last week, I've been gone all of July, so it's great to see you. It's been like six weeks, I guess, probably for some of you. And so great to be back here. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Philemon chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. Um, actually, it's the only chapter in Philemon, so it shouldn't be hard to find that one. But um, <laughs> if you've been around for a little while, one of the things I like to do back in August when I get back is to rehash certain elements of our vision and to be able to bring us back to the beginning because it's so very easy to forget the basic things that he has called us to do and who he has called us to become. And so, again, one of the ways that we talk about our vision here, you've heard me say it a number of times, is that we hope and pray by God's grace that we would become a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace that exists for the joy of the city and for the glory of God. And so we're absolutely a family of believers here. We don't uh, shun that. We accept it. We are a family of believers. And as much as you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, placed your faith in him, he has adopted you into uh, his family, made you sons and daughters, given you the right to be called children of God, which makes you and I one big, messy, interesting family. Uh, a lot of fun there. And so we're absolutely that. We're not just any kind of a family. We're way we're talking about, around it, about it around here. Uh, we don't want to be like uh, the Fockers and meet the parents. We want to be more like Medea's family, right? You guys remember these movies back in the 90s or early 2000s or something like that? Uh, the Fockers and meet the parents had this circle of trust. No one was allowed to break into that circle of trust. You're always on the outside of it. Medea throws a barbecue. The entire city's in her backyard. Everyone's welcome and that, that kind of a thing. That's the kind of family we want to be, a family and a community of believers that is marked by God's grace that exists for the joy of our city and for the glory um, of God. And so that's the last part is the one that I want to talk about a little bit today. What does it mean for us to be a community of believers that exists for the joy of our city and for the glory of God? How can the two work hand in hand together? It's an important question that we've got to wrestle with because we've got to understand that um, as you talk about with people outside the walls of most traditional churches, uh, there's going to be a lot of tension when it comes to that question. There's going to be a lot of different people that believe that religion's not just, um, it, just as not helpful, but it's actually evil and harmful for culture today. I was reading an article not too long ago called exactly that, Six Reasons Why Religion May Do More Harm for Our Culture Than It Does Good. And it said a lot of the things that we've talked about here before, but it made the argument that religion promotes tribalism and division. In other words, it's this, hey, we're right, you're wrong camp mentality. Uh, we're orthodox, you're a heretic kind of a thing. And it creates these tribes and creates these divisions around culture. Um, they, said, they talked about things like religion anchors people in the Iron Age. In other words, it brings people back to a time uh, that was rampant uh, with superstition, with ignorance, with misogyny, with racism, with prejudice, with divide, uh, with slavery, with violence, and things like that. And it links us to a time that we have since progressed out of and become better than. And so in those kinds of ways, they argue that religion can be very, very damaging to culture there. Religion makes faith a virtue rather than reason, Right? We don't, want to be, we don't want to live by faith. We want to live by reason. We need to amplify reason there. That's a major value today, which isn't wrong, but uh, that's just one of the things. Religion diverts feelings of generosity and goodwill. In other words, as soon as you start feeling bad about what's going on in Haiti and the orphan crisis around the world, you're, you're hit with this, hey, just donate to this big giant megachurch and, all, and you'll feel, you can feel good about yourself again. Kind of a mentality. We talked about how religion teaches helplessness instead of self-sufficiency. You heard this one before, it teaches helplessness and dependence upon another uh, rather than becoming big and strong and self-sufficient in and of your own strength. Again, there's tension there in some of our messaging. And the last one I just talked about, that religion seeks and demands power. I felt that this, um, this quote from the article is really, really telling. Check this out. It says, in fact, 
unbeknown to religious practitioners, harming society may actually be part of religion's survival strategy. As long as there are hurt people in the world, there will always be a need for people to be saved. The reason that I bring that up is because it's how much of our world thinks about what we do week in and week out. It's what much of the world thinks about our gathering and how they view what we do. In fact, it was John Adams who said, this would be the best of all possible worlds if there were no religion in it at all. So church, how is the gospel different from stereotypical religion? That's what I want to look at today. And how is our church's gathering actually good for our city, good for our world, and good for the glory of God at the exact same time? That's what Philemon is going to help us with today. So again, if you have your Bible, Philemon, again, the only chapter there, 350 words, chapter 1 is where you can turn. Uh, if you're needing a good Bible reading program to jump into, Philemon is a great place to start because you can immediately feel victorious that you can master a whole book immediately right there at the onset. Um, easy story to read. I'm going to argue it's probably one of the more beautiful stories that you're going to see in Scripture. I absolutely love this story. There's three characters you need to know about. Uh, Paul is the author of this letter. The Apostle Paul wrote nearly half the New Testament. Uh, greatest missionary probably the world's ever known. Uh, he's the author. He's writing along with Timothy, his brother. However, Paul's the one that's really doing the, most of the writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. Uh, then there's also Philemon. Philemon is a, uh, is a wealthy Roman noble, nobleman who's living in Colossae. Uh, whom Paul led to Christ many years prior. And so he's a religious leader. He's very wealthy. He evidently owns a lot of servants. Uh, we'll talk about that here in a little while. Um, and he's a church leader there at the time. Paul led him to faith many years prior. And then, of course, there's going to be Onesimus, who is a runaway slave servant of Philemon's, and who evidently, he, in his running away, he happens to meet the apostle Paul in Rome just by chance, right? Um, he's running away from Colossae to Rome, happens to meet Paul in a minimum security prison. Maybe it's under house arrest or something like that, but happens to run into Paul, and Paul does what Paul does, right? You meet the apostle Paul on the road. He's going to share the gospel. He's a Kyle Martin back in his day, and, right? and, and he just shares the gospel, and the dude immediately comes to faith. And in the context of this relationship together, um, Paul comes to realize that Onesimus has run away and evidently stolen some property from Philemon, and in the context of this new relationship, he's been reconciled to God the Father. Paul encourages him to go back and then be reconciled with his brother Philemon. But this time, here's the kicker. Not in this master-slave relationship that was there before, but now as brothers in Jesus Christ. And so I want to get into this because there's all kinds of tension here that's going to be interesting to talk about here. Uh, but I'm going I'm to argue that this, this message of reconciliation and this impetus for believers to be agents of reconciliation, which is going to be the major difference maker, which is actually good for our community. So uh, let's pick it up here in verse 8. I'm going to skip a little bit of stuff. The beginning is, is uh, Paul thanking him and kind of flattering Philemon a little bit. Uh, he's going to get into verse 8 a little bit into his request. Here's what he says. He says, Therefore, although in Jesus Christ... I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, okay? Yet I prefer to appeal you on the basis of love. And so he's writing this letter to Philemon, urging him to be reconciled once again to Onesimus. And he's saying, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, now he's become useful to you, both as a, uh, to, to you and to me, uh, as we co-labor together in the work of the gospel, essentially. Verse 12, I'm sending him, I love his affection here, check this out, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I'm sending Onesimus who is my very heart back to you. 
I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. In case you didn't get that picture, I'm in, I'm in prison here. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but it would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason that he was separated from you for a little while was that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention the fact that you owe me your own very life, right? I love his, I love his little guilt trip there. He's like, yeah, uh, never mind the fact that, hey, you're saved because I had the, the, the boldness to go and to share the gospel with you in the first place. So I'm not going to force you to do anything, but uh, let's be real about that. I do wish, brother, that I would have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Jesus Christ. Here it is, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I'm asking you right now. And then he wraps it up like this, and he says, one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you and answer to your prayers. In other words, you know those prayers that you've been praying that, hey, I'm going to get free from prison. We're going to be reconciled once again. Yeah, that's about to happen, and you better believe I'm going to come to your home, and I'm going to be staying at your home following up with you to see if you've actually been reconciled uh, with your brother Onesimus, right? So I'm going to be checking up on you right there. Not exactly subtle, that Paul. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends you greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers in Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's the entire book right there, entire letter. One letter in the Bible dedicated to a wealthy Christian business owner being reconciled with a runaway slave. Anyone else feel the tension a little bit in, in that? Brian Loritz is a pastor up north that I follow and love. He's an African-American preacher, and he was talking about this, and he says, as a black man, there, there are things that I pick up on in Philemon that make me want to throw up. The church meets in his home, yet he has slaves. I wish Paul were more forceful in denouncing the institution altogether. Nevertheless, I can't deny that the gospel undercuts this institution every step of the way, which is exactly what I want to talk about right here. Church, like there's two things going on here that I want to say about the gospel that makes it very, very different from stereotypical harmful religion and actually good for our community and good for our world. The first thing is that the gospel has a way of subverting broken systems. The gospel has a way of subverting broken systems. And this is a huge one to understand because religion, um, if we were being really, really honest about ourselves and, and looking back at that article I referenced there at the very beginning, we would have to acknowledge that, yeah, religion has absolutely been used uh, in order to create broken systems in the first place. I mean, George Whitfield, one of the most famous preachers in the 18th century, one of the leaders in the Great Awakening, one of the heroes and the greatest evangelists uh, in church history there, he actually fought to legalize slavery in Georgia after it had already been uh, made illegal. Jefferson Davis, professing believer and former president of the Confederate, said, slavery was actually established by decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages. It has been found among his people. It has been found among the people of the highest civilizations and in the nations of the highest proficiency in the arts. Hey, as long as you're great at the arts, then hey, you can do whatever you want, right? Richard Furman, president of the South Carolina Southern Baptist Convention, argued that the right of holding slaves is clearly established by the Holy Scriptures, both by precept and by example. 
Church, we understand like that was the main issue that separated the Northern Baptists from the Southern Baptists in 1845 and began the whole Southern Baptist Convention, not to where you are today by any stretch of imagination. 1845, this is one of the major issues that were in play. The other one was missions and how world missions would go about throughout the rest of the world, but this is the one that was on the table. The North was against slavery. They were for the abolition of slavery, and the South was primarily for it. It was a major, major impetus for it. And, of course, what they're doing is they're looking at the word of God, things like Colossians chapter 3 where the apostle Paul says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. And they're reading things like in Ephesians 6, 5 where he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and with fear. And, of course, they're reading like Philemon and stuff, and they're kind of going, okay, well, uh, he doesn't exactly condemn it here. Uh, He's not explicit in his condemnation of this establishment going on here, so it must be okay. Church, like, it, it must be okay. I mean, never mind the fact that, like, the slavery of today is nothing like the slavery and the the servitude that was going on in biblical times. We understand this, right? There's an enormous difference. You cannot take, uh, you can't always take things, uh, modern day definitions, and, and, and impose it on Scripture back then. Very different things that are going on there. Murray Harris talks about that in his book, Slave of Jesus Christ. He's saying this is a word that's become, that's changed over time, and it's not the same as it was immediately back then. In some cases it was. Nevertheless, it's very, very difficult to talk about today because it doesn't mean the same thing now that it did back then. He talks about in the two centuries before and after Jesus Christ, nearly 60% of the, of the uh, populated world and nearly 90% of the Roman Empire uh, were considered slaves who actually functioned as indentured servants, um, where people would actually sell themselves into servitude in order to pay off their bills or to pay off a debt. So in lieu of a banking system, they would sell themselves into uh, someone who had money, give them, give them ability to provide for themselves, and then they would be their servant, and they would work for 10, 20 years until they were freed of that debt that they owed them. Essentially, it's kind of how it worked in a lot of different ways. He talks about it like this. He says, in the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race. This is a major difference, okay? They were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. Sometimes they were more highly educated than their owners, held responsible professional positions. Some people sold themselves into slavery for economic and social advantage and could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly, were not socially segregated, at least in the major cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom, and their natural inferiority was never, ever, ever assumed. Typically, that's how it worked a lot of times in the ancient world. Now, as you say that, you have to acknowledge it's not how it always worked. It's not how it always worked, which is some of the difficulty. Part of it was much more like a labor system that seems to have some legitimacy, even though it's probably not ideal. Um, but a lot of the times it did not work in that ideal kind of a way. Uh, sometimes that people were taken as spoils of war and forced into servitude. And sometimes uh, they were just simply forced into slavery just because. But here it is, church, in every single one of those cases, um, Scripture condemns everything that we hate about the slave trade today. I mean, we, we understand this, right? It, it is always condemning everything that we hate about the slave trade today. Exodus 21, 19, anyone who kidnaps another for sale must be put to death. Anyone kidnaps another person for sale must be put to death. I mean, this is Moses back at the formation of Israel right there, clarifying there's a difference going on here. I mean, church, where in the world did Christians ever get this idea that it was okay to kidnap, uh, enslave, murder, rape, pillage, any of these things that we associate with, slaves, with the slave trade today? 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 10, understand this, Paul says, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral people, men who practice homosexuality, here it is, enslavers, 
kidnappers, people who capture people for their own, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I mean, church, where in the world do Christians, anybody get this idea that, that the Bible sanctions what's going on here, violence and hatred? Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity. Here it is, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, right? Envy, drunkenness, orgies, those who practice such things won't inherit the kingdom of God apart from his grace and his reconciling work. Like, where in the world do we get this idea that racism and inequality was an okay thing to perpetuate uh, culturally? Galatians 3.28 is going to make it very clear. Paul says, in Jesus Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Jesus Christ. In other words, like, the world may see Jew and Greek. The world may see male and female. The world may see slave or free. But if you're in Jesus Christ, then you've been made one. You've been adopted into the exact same family, and as much as you have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've been given the right to be called children of God. You are an image bearer of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and you've been brought into this family and made one. I mean, look what, look what he's saying to Philemon. He says, Philemon, I, I want you to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a brother. As a brother, yeah, I know that he's dear to me. I love him. We've been together for this time. He's even dear to you, both as a fellow man, not a half man, not two-thirds of a man or anything like that, as a full man made in the image of God and as a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, like that's what the gospel does. It brings unity to a people that have no business being unified. I mean, it takes people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and it says you're all equally guilty, and at the exact same time, you're also equally loved. In other words, like, I don't care if you come from privilege or poverty, from religion or from heresy. You are all in the exact same boat. You are lost and dead in your sins, but you're also equally loved because while you were lost and dead in your sins, Christ came and he died on your behalf. And he did so so that as many as would come to genuine saving faith in him might be, might be given the right to be called children of God and brought into that exact same family. Church, it's what the gospel does. It's vertical reconciliation first and foremost, and then horizontal reconciliation everywhere else. He turns enemies into children and rivalry into family. At church, it, it destroys broken systems because he brings healing to broken people, right? I mean, Onesimus was running away, living in fear. Now he's going back, and he was, he was hopeless, and he had no purpose. But now that he's, he's in Jesus Christ, he finds his purpose. And the beautiful thing is we know from church history that he goes on to become a prominent leader in the church, both he and Philemon do. They reconcile this thing. They, come, they become brothers once again, and he's a leader in the church. John Newton was a wandering slave trader when he finally understood the gospel, renounced his former life, and penned the lyrics to Amazing Grace, which we sing, still sing today. William Wilberforce, the same thing. He was a wandering politician when he first met John Newton, who, and he finally understood the gospel. And a short time later, he wrote this in his journal. Check this out. God Almighty has set before me two great objectives, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of a broken national morality. Church, is what the gospel does. It destroys broken systems because it brings healing to broken people. And of course, we know that it's not just with slavery that it's undermining and things of that nature. Christianity Today had an article a little while ago that talked about how Christians between the years 1780 and 1844 founded at least 233 different national, religious, moral, educational, and philanthropic institutions in order to alleviate child abuse, poverty, illiteracy, and other kinds of social ills. Talking about ministries like the Forlorn Females Fund of Mercy. I love some of these names. The Maritime Female Penitent Refuge for Poor and Degraded Females. 
the Society for Returning Young Women to their friends in the country. Friendly Female Society for the Relief of Poor, Sick, Aged Widows, and Single Women of Good Character Who've Seen Better Days. They probably need to work on those titles a little bit, but... I mean, it continues. We know this in the 1900s, it was the Salvation Army and William Booth. We've seen the abject poverty all around him and recognizing the gospels undermining these broken systems and coming in and saying, you know what, we're going to do things a little bit different. And church, what I'm saying is it continues with us today, continues with For the Nations, our refugee ministry outreach partner, which we've been connected with long before it was ever a political hot topic. It's our calling in the homeless crisis. It's, it's circle one. And some of the surrounding neighborhoods and the ways that we interact with immigrants in our community, love them, care for them, meet them right where they are. Do a food pantry here, teaching ESL classes and things of that nature, again, long before it ever got political. Leads me to my second point here, church, is that the gospel doesn't just suggest this kind of activity. It seems like it actually demands that we become agents of reconciliation. And I want you to notice Paul's tone in this entire letter, but it seems to be the entire point of what he's saying here. Like it's not just a suggestion, this is an implication of now that you've actually been vertically reconciled with God the Father through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, since you've, become, since you've been the recipient of such enormous grace, go and then be reconcilers in the world in which you live. I mean, it, it, it's not even a suggestion, too. Like, we caught on to that early. Early, it kind of seems like, hey, uh, I'm being nice about this thing. And then he starts to say in, like, verse 8 and 9, he says, you know, I could just order you to do what you should be doing. I'd rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And he starts getting more and more forceful to the point where he says, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty confident of your obedience, so why don't you just go ahead and prepare that guest room for me because you better believe, like, I'm coming back and I'm going to check, check up on you to see, hey, if this whole thing's been actually reconciled or not. Church, the point of the matter is, like, reconciliation is that central to what he's called us to do. I mean, how in the world can Philemon, a leader in the early church, a brother in Christ, how in the world can, can Philemon, a recipient of such enormous grace, where he's failed against the holiness of God over and 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 over again, and God's grace has been poured out to him day by day, by minute by minute, by hour by hour, over and over again the entirety of his life. How in the world can he be such a recipient of God's grace and still be unforgiving to someone that he's supposed to love? I mean, Jesus is going to say this in Matthew chapter 5. If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and first be reconciled to them. Then you can come back and offer your gift. In other words, church, like do whatever it takes in order to be reconciled with brothers and sisters. Like do whatever it takes to go into to make peace in this relationship. Like even if it means interrupting your sacred religious duties, like it's that important. Leave what you're doing. Leave church. Don't go on a Sunday morning if it means you're going to go back and be reconciled with a brother, a sister, a father, a mother, a spouse, whoever it is that you may be in broken relationship with. Paul's going to say Romans 12:18. If it's at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He says. In other words, like don't let a conflict linger. Don't pretend that it doesn't exist. Don't live in naivety. Don't live in passivity. Don't pretend that this thing doesn't actually do take place. Like, in as much as it depends upon you, recognizing reconciliation is an agreement between two mutual people. Forgiveness is a one-sided thing. It is a decision that you make by faith to God the Father because of what he's done for you in Jesus Christ, whereby you say to God, I'm going to let go of my right to bitterness. I'm going to let go of my right to vengeance, and I'm going to forgive the person who's offended to me no matter what they've done to deserve it or not. That's forgiveness. Reconciliation requires two to tango. And what Paul's saying is, in as much as it depends upon you, do whatever it takes to bring about peace with everyone that you may be in conflict with. Church, I don't have to tell you, but if 
like if there's ever a time that the world needed peacemakers out there, like that time is now, right? We get that. If there was ever a time for the church to rise up and to be a, an entire community of peacemakers in the world, that time is now. I mean, it seems like you go online and pretty much the only thing we're in agreement about is that we are more divided today than we have been at any time probably since the Civil War. Anytime in my lifetime, I can imagine anyway, which is not the Civil War, but you know. <laughs> I mean, the right blames the left. The left blames the right. Everyone's blaming social media, CNN, Fox News. Pew Research was talking about how marriage rates continue to plummet even in the church. Marriage rates continue to plummet even in the church while the divorce rate continues to climb. You know what that means? It means that, that people are giving up on the idea of marriage altogether because they have no hope that they can actually make it last. And you know what? They're right in a lot of ways. They're recognizing the trends that their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents and their friends and people like that, like they, they loved each other in the very beginning. They were passionate about it and they loved each other and they made all these commitments before God and nothing, none of it meant a thing at all. And they're becoming disillusioned to the entire thing. Church, like we're leaving people we were called to love, people that we promised before God, saying, hey, I'm gonna love this person until death do us part, no matter what, no matter what comes our way, sickness or health, I'm gonna love and be committed to this person until death do us part. And we're citing things like irreconcilable differences that aren't irreconcilable. It's simply that we don't know how to reconcile or we don't have the stomach to go through the long process of reconciliation. And what Paul's saying is, in as much as it depends upon you, do whatever it takes to be at peace with the people that you're supposed to love. Church, like it's all right here. I mean, it's the entire message of the book of Philemon. Like the gospel heals broken systems because it heals broken people. The gospel's good for our community because it's good for people, church. Like, like, like the world needs more Pauls out there that are willing to go and to be reconcilers between broken relationships that are out there. Like the world needs you and me to go and to be the Apostle Paul, people who will go and help facilitate peace between brothers and sisters in Christ, men and women, people out there in a community who need more peace in their life. I mean, that's exactly what Paul does. He meets Onesimus. He figures out what's going on. Hey, he's stolen from my buddy Philemon. He's run away and all these things. Now that you're in Christ, and he's saying, go back and facilitate peace. And it's not just this one-sided one conversation. He tells Onesimus, go back. This is part of the gospel here. But he's also saying here, Philemon, don't forget he's a brother in Jesus Christ. Treat him as such. He's a brother. He's not anything that you own. He's not anything that you, would, that you need to oppose. Like he's a brother in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes out there and he's mediating peace between this broken relationship church. Like the world needs you and me to be Paul's out there. Praise God that he didn't stay passive in the middle of this conflict. Praise God that he didn't choose to sit on the sideline and be like, yep, brokenness. Mom and dad, they're jacked up. Brother and sister, they're jacked up. Friends, yep, that's messed up. That's not my business. Praise God that Paul thought it was his business and decided to get involved. I'll never forget years ago, I was talking with some friends that they went to another church long before I ever got here, and they were talking about some conflict in the small group. They didn't really know what to do. We were kind of processing things out loud. And, and essentially, they came and said, yeah, this couple's come back here to, to small group, and for, for a long time, like they've been saying, like they're living in this abusive relationship. I mean, he's just verbally, emotionally, sexually even. Like, and they're confessing it in the small group, and they're talking about it together, and, and she's like, I, I, we don't know what to do. We're supposed to be the shepherds in this whole thing. We're supposed to be the ones that lead people through this whole problem. And we, we, we don't know what to do. Like, what are we supposed to do? And the, 
And then they said, oh, you know what, like, she's running from the Lord right now. She doesn't even want to be a part of the group, probably because it's been going on for two years and nothing's been done about it. And she's going, they're running from the Lord, and it seems like he kind of wants to change a little bit, but we don't, we don't know what to do. And I'm going, who in the world are the people that are willing to go and have that conversation and say, you know what, we need to see reconciliation take place. We need safety first and foremost, and then we need to bring, this, we need to bring some church leadership into this thing. Who are the reconcilers? Who are the Pauls willing to come in and say, hey, you need counseling, and if you need help with counseling, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. Is that central to what God wants to do in your life for personal healing and collectively in this reconciliation thing that we talk about all the time? Like where are the Pauls in the small group willing to say, hey, brother, you're not acting like a brother in Jesus Christ. Like the word of God says to love your wife as Christ loved the church when he's willing to lay down his life for the sake of her flourishing. Where in the world is that? Like where in the world is the love? Like your life, there's nothing about the way that you're living that, that coincides with the gospel you proclaim. Praise God, Paul didn't sit on the sidelines and say, hey, that's your business, not mine. Church, the world needs you and me to be Paul's that are so committed to peace, that are so committed to reconciliation, that it stirs our soul when we see brokenness in our groups, brokenness in our community, brokenness in our families and friendships, that we're willing to come and say, hey, I may be okay, but you're not, and that is my business and I want to come in here, and I want to love you so well. I will pay for your counseling. I will sit there with you as you meet with a, with a, with a church staff member. I will do whatever it takes for you to feel safe, for you to get healing, and for this thing to be brought back together again. Church, the world needs Pauls. The world needs Pauls. Men and women who understand reconciliation, that are willing to go out there and help mediate it with people that are, that are hurting and desperately need it and don't know where to find it. Church, the world needs Philemon's too. Men and women who've been hurt and offended. And Philemon's probably done things himself too, I'm pretty sure, in this relationship, which is very, very complicated and messed up in a lot of ways. Like I'm sure he's got a lot in there too that's not talked about here in the text. But the world needs Philemon's, people who feel offended, people who are hurt, that desperately, that are fiercely committed to forgiveness and reconciliation with people who've hurt them. The world needs Philemon's, men and women who are understanding of the amount of grace that God has given to him in Jesus Christ. The reality that in my own brokenness, I've offended his holiness day in and day out, over and over and over and over and over again, and there's a God in heaven who's never given up on me. Like the world desperately needs Philemon's, people who are willing to go out there and, and freely and easily give that grace and forgiveness that the world so desperately needs, not in a way that perpetuates abuse. I hope you hear me on that. There are times and places to get space and to be, to be safe, not in a way that is perpetuating abuse, but there, the world needs Philemon's that are quick to give forgiveness, that are willing to say, you know what, I'm not gonna hold on to the bitterness that I have towards you. I'm not gonna make you pay for it over and over and over and over again, even though we dealt with it 5, 10, 15 years ago. I'm gonna let it go, and I'm gonna choose forgiveness instead. Church, some of you are there, like that, that's absolutely the place that you are. You've been holding on to this thing that's, you've been holding on to this, this offense against you for so long and, and you know how it is, right? Like you know how to make people continue to pay for what they've done even though it's supposed to be done in the past, right? You know how to give the cold shoulder. You know how to withhold joy from people and, and you know how to hold back a little bit and make them pay for the things that they've done. Some of us are there right, right now, and the world needs Philemon's. 
And it may be that the Holy Spirit is saying, you know what, I am Philemon in this case, and it's time that I'm done with the things that I've been holding on to for so long in this relationship or in that relationship over there, and I'm willing to grant legitimate, genuine forgiveness because it's exactly what God's done for me in Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Church, the world needs Onesimus. The world needs a church that is full of Onesimuses. Men, women, and children who know how to be humble before God and honestly repent from the things that they've done to break relationships and to break people along the way. Church of the world needs Onesimus's people that aren't pursuing pride first and foremost. People that are comfortable on their knees before a holy God and daily confession, recognizing, yeah, I am broken. And in the middle of my brokenness, I was still loved by you so much so that you sent Jesus who gives me that grace and healing and forgiveness over and over and over again. We need men and women who are so fluent in the language of grace that we sit there and we are comfortable in humility and willing to repent of whatever things we've done to break apart different relationships. It's exactly who he is. People who who feel like we were justified in stealing and running away at some point in time, only later on to figure out, hey, you know what? I was the one that was in the wrong and that are willing to go back and to be able to make things right. Church, it's not easy what Paul's asking Onesimus to do. I'm sure Onesimus is looking at the situation saying, hey, Philemon's not innocent either, right? Have you ever had that thing? Hey, they're not, they're not innocent. I mean, I'm not either, but hey, this is kind of both 50-50 kind of a thing. It's not easy what Onesimus is doing. Paul's saying, I want you to go back and I want you to own the things as much as it is dependent upon you. Go and be at peace with the people you're supposed to love. Go back there. It's not easy. He's coming back, tail tucked between his legs, kind of going, hey, I was in the wrong. I never should have taken off and stolen your things, whatever it may be. Have you ever been there before? Where at first you kind of feel like you're in the right and later on you figure out, hey, I was, I'm kind of the one that, that, that blew this deal. I mean, we talked about it a lot around here. Neil Tomba always says, you know what it feels like to be wrong? It feels like you're right, doesn't it? I love it. I love it. He says, it's exactly right. When you're in the wrong, it always feels like you're right. That's why you did the thing that you did. You said the thing that you said. You feel like you were right. I love the way that the psalmist says it. He says this. He guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. He will only guide the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. Church, the world needs Onesimuses, men, women, and children who aren't clinging to this, hey, I'm right and everyone else is wrong kind of a thing. Men, women, and children who are clinging to the gospel, that are comfortable uh, with the gospel, that are comfortable on their knees before God, coming before him and other people in complete and total humility and willing to repent of the things that they've done to break apart different relationships. Church, has, has anger, pride, or rage, has that ever been helpful in bringing people back together again? Has defensiveness ever been helpful in reconciling a broken relationship? I, I, I know that it makes you feel better in the moment, and I, and I know that it silences the other person so that there's an illusion of peace right then and there because they don't know what to say. They feel crushed and they don't know what to say. But like, I know that it makes you feel better in the moment, but has it ever done anything to actually reconcile what's been broken? can't tell you how many times, church, I've had to hit pause in an argument with Kat over the years and just step away and say, hey, I need, some, I need some f a few minutes to get away in a room and, and to figure things out and to pray. Not days, not weeks, not silent treatment forever. On uh, We're talking minutes. I need to hit a pause. And we go into the other room, and, and I think to myself, and I pray before God, and I'm like, Lord, I don't know what's going on here. Like, all hell's broken loose. I don't know what's happening. You ever had this thought before? Like, I don't know what's wrong with them. 
How many times I've had to sit there and say, God, I know this thing's bigger and I'm not saying things well right now, but Father, would you humble me right now? And would you let me see what I've done as you see it? Would you help me understand the truth? God, would you lower me that we could be reconciled and have peace together again in this marriage and this relationship? Can't tell you how many times we've both had to go do that. Like, it's great when one person does it. Can you imagine if two people were doing that and they prayed like that? I mean, do you think that your marriage would have all the contention that it has? Do you think that the divorce rates would be what they are today if you've got two believers in Christ that were Onesimuses, comfortable with humility, that didn't actually believe that they were never wrong, and they were comfortable with it and said, you know what, there's a possibility that some of this may be on me. Heaven forbid. Like the world needs Onesimuses. Can't tell you how many times I've had to do that. And what ends up taking place is you pray that prayer, you sit there and you just wait and you listen and you allow the Holy Spirit to just flood your heart and to flood your mind with whatever comes up. And what ends up happening is like your blood begins to even out inside your body, you begin to settle down, things come to mind. And ideally you're able to come back together in this relationship once again and you're able to say, hey babe, um, I can see what you were talking about a little while ago, you're right. Like, I feel very right about what I was actually doing, but the way that I went about it was absolutely horrific. And I'm really, really, really sorry for the things that I've done. Like, I'm sorry for the ways that I've treated you, for the ways that I've taken advantage of you, for the ways that I've overlooked you. I'm sorry for these different things. And you need to understand that that is not my desire to ever do that again in the future. And I know that there's gonna be screw-ups, but like, I I, want to turn from that. And I want you to know that I'm not okay with that ever being normative in our relationship again. I mean, can you imagine if your marriage was two Onesimuses that sat there and said, you know what, I know how to be humble before a holy God and I know how to repent and acknowledge when things are broken in me. Church, the world is desperate for those. The world is desperate for those. And not a false humility, not lip service, like genuine repentance. And what that means for some of us who've been walking in something for many, many, many years is that you may need outside help counselors, freedom prayer ministry, pastors on ministry, small group ministry, things of that nature. They're going to walk with you for a long time so that you can actually walk in genuine repentance and it be lip service no longer. The world needs more Onesimuses. Someone I know and love recently went back to her estranged son. It's been a number of years since they've had a good relationship back in high school. He's a grown man now. He ran away, um, dropped out of high school, a lot of addiction, a lot of brokenness, a lot of dysfunction in there. It's created a lot of problems in the, ten, in the family. Recently, she's getting older, and she comes to this conviction of, hey, you know what, as much as it depends upon me, I want to be at peace with my son. I want him to know that his mom loves him, and that even though this whole thing's really, really jacked up, that I'm here, and that I love him. So she reaches out, she makes an appointment, she flies to the city he's living in right now, and goes and spends the weekend with him not long ago. And, and she says, you know what, the weekend was kind of awkward because we're hanging out and we're enjoying our time together. We're spending, we're, we're seeing the city and we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of really cool things. But reality is we're not talking about any of the things that led us to the point where we're at. It's kind of on the surface and it was kind of up there and we weren't really dealing with anything that was real and that mattered. So she's enjoying the time, a little bit frustrated, gets back to the, to the airport to go home that night and All of a sudden, she just stops in the airport, and she turns to him, and she says, you know what? You need to know 
that I'm sorry for the things that I've done in the past. You need to know, I want to let you know how sorry I am for not being the mother that you needed me to be, for being passive when you needed me to step up and to be a voice. And the crazy thing is, you look at this story and you're kind of going, okay, this is a lopsided responsibility here. She was fantastic in so many things. There's this brokenness and just messed up things over here. And he turned at her and just broke, wept. Mom, I've ruined it. I've ruined my life. I'm so sorry for the things that I've done. She gets back home and there's no delusion that everything's perfect and everything's healed and hey, we're holding hands and happy and everything's, you know, everything's fine and dandy for the rest of our days. But the ball of reconciliation moved that day when she was willing to get on her knees and say, you know what, here's what I'm responsible for. The two and a half most powerful words in the English language are, I'm sorry. It does wonders for reconciliation. Church, I pray that we're that kind of a church, that we're comfortable with those words. That we're not under this delusion that, hey, my people have always been right, that Christians have always done it right, that the church has always done it right because religion has messed up a lot of things over the, over the years. That our political party is always right. It's equally offensive if you're actually following Jesus. I can promise you that. That we are willing to sit there and bend a knee before a holy God and say, you know what, I need grace. And I need forgiveness over here horizontally too. Would you come and breathe life into these broken relationships? Again, it's why the gospel is good for the community. It's why the gospel is good for the community. The world needs Pauls. The world needs Philemon's. And the world needs a lot of Onesimus. And my hope and prayer is that that would be true here at Dallas Bible Church, that he would breathe life into your broken relationships. The marriages would be healed. That abuse would be no more. That pride would dissipate and humility would rise. 